This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delight. Uh, Patrick McGuire will be back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every Leader of the Opposition who crucially never made it to number 10. From Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer. So let's get on with it then. Hit the montage. Leader of the pack. Right, this week's Leader of the Opposition um, is John Spencer, who was um, the heir to the uh, Spencer earldom. Uh, he became later on the, the third Earl Spencer, um, but was known um, in the period that we're interested in um, uh, as Viscount Althorpe or, or Viscount Altrup. Um, as we know, the aristocracy delight in having um, titles that uh, catch the rest of us out in pronunciation, but I'm going to call it Althorpe. Um, and um, he was uh, Leader of the Opposition very briefly, really, um, between um, sort of February and um, sort of November of 1830. Uh, uh, um, but he's actually quite an interesting character for his um, sort of political journey. Um, as an aristocrat, he was, um, as well as having uh, something which I think is uh, is always to the good, which is the same name as the actor who played um, Leo in The West Wing, um, which um, puts him <laughs> in uh, a good place in my book to start with. But um, so he um, was born at Spencer House, uh, the, the family at home in, in London, um, and was the eldest child of the second um, Earl Spencer. And uh, his biographers have noted that his, his upbringing was rather blighted by um, quite a, a formidable mother um, who frankly bullied her children um, and they suggest that that harmed his self-confidence um, into adulthood and certainly he does seem to be a fairly um, modest and unprepossessing um, man in his career he wasn't um, uh, particularly dominant um, in the way that sort of some um, political figures were um, educated at, at Harrow um, whilst he was there he was a contemporary of four future prime ministers um, by Count wow. Godric. No, well, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's another reason to, to knock your confidence 
if four <laughs> people you were at school with become prime minister and you didn't, you only managed to lead with the opposition. Indeed, and he he um, was there with Viking Goderick, um, Robert Peel, Lord Aberdeen, Lord Palmerston, um, and then went up to um, Trinity College, um, Cambridge. Um, and he was, as we've become used to, elected, in inverted commas, to the House of Commons for one of the rotten boroughs, um, in his case, Oakhampton, in 1804. Um, but he then um, famously fought a, uh, an election in 1806. He resigned that seat and, and at his father's instigation, um, fought a seat in 1806 to replace William Pitt, who had died, uh, and who sat for the seat of Cambridge University. The, the universities in those days had their own seats in Parliament. Um, and predictably, he lost that. It was never going to be one that he was going to win. Um, and uh, he then um, was uh, found another, another seat in uh, Northamptonshire, where the, the country seat of the, the family was. And he held that seat for the rest of his time um, in the Commons. Um, it's worth saying it's a bit confusing sometimes when we have people with aristocratic titles in the House of Commons. Um, it's a courtesy title um, that he held as Viscount Althorpe. Um, but you have this a lot, and it's very confusing, um, speaking for myself, um, looking at this time, to try and work out were these people in the House of Lords or the House of Commons? Well, he was in the House of Commons for actually quite a long time um, from, from that moment on until he inherited um, the, the Oldham um, sort of quite a long, a long time later in, uh, in 1834. Um, but he wasn't a particularly active parliamentarian. Uh, he didn't make his maiden speech for another five years after he was elected. I mean, that's <laughs> when I read that, I thought, I mean, you talked about him lacking confidence. I don't you would. Well, A, you would just wouldn't be able to get away with that now if you didn't make your maiden speech. But that's also clearly not a man pu pushing himself to the forefront of British politics. He didn't no, exactly. make, make his maiden speech for five years. No, exactly. And and this is something which is very interesting about his political journey, um, is that he was essentially a, you know, a country gentleman. He was an aristocrat. He was going to inherit the title. Um, he wasn't particularly interested in politics. But what seems to have radicalised him and got him more interested in politics was the reaction to um, the Peterloo massacre, which was um, where um, government forces um, sort of um, um, killed protesters uh, just outside Manchester uh, in 1819. Um, and there were mass protests going on across the country with uprisings uh, of people protesting for, or, or the need for parliamentary reform, um, the abolition of rotten boroughs, the um, increase of the franchise and the vote to people. Um, and he was quite, quite clearly affected by uh, the reaction to this. The, the government of Lord Liverpool brought in severe restrictions to, to quell insurrection, um, preventing large gatherings and, and, and so on. Um, and, and he felt this was going too far and that um, instead of, of cracking down on protests, that actually the government needed to listen to the protesters um, and to enact parliamentary reform as a way of quelling um, this dissent in the country. And that was the, the cause which then defined the rest of his um, political career uh, over the next sort of 10 years or so. Um, he became a, a staunch advocate of parliamentary reform. He spoke at rallies alongside um, prominent reformers, many of whom were actually sort of being persecuted and arrested for their for their views. Um, and, and that was the cause that he he then fought against actually someone in his own party in the Whig party who, who felt that there was um, a need only to sort of go a certain um, way in order to, to sort of quell these protests and not actually to, to, to enact reform. Um, and he was, I think we can judge on the right side of history because he, he was somebody who um, had been quite consistent in that view. And then uh, when he entered government later on um, in 1830, uh, he was a significant figure in the government of, um, of Earl Grey, who um, enacted famously the, the Great Reform Act. Um, but he was he was very instrumental in that. Um, and certainly managing that through the House of Commons, getting the House of Commons to vote for a measure um, which 
effectively abolished them in their current state and, and brought in new voters um, was quite a difficult thing. And the only way he managed to do that was because he was um, trusted by yeah. people in the House of Commons. And I suppose actually, I mean, that's, you know, he did have, you know, big influence on sort of Britain, but just not ever quite making it to Prime Minister. Um, I was just trying to, I was just trying to, is he great, 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 great granddad of Diana? <laughs> um, is it four great, so, four or five great? But anyway, that's that's what we're talking about, isn't it? A, exactly, yes. Of, uh, he would have been an ancestor of, uh, of Diana indeed. Um, and uh, as I say, he's, like a lot of these these leaders um, we're looking at, he only accepted the leadership of the opposition for those few months before the Whigs <laughs> took office. Um, but his his impact later on in his career was was significant. So that was John Spencer, Viscount Orthrop. We now move on to the next leader of the opposition, Lord George Bentinck. Well, this week's leader of the opposition is um, Lord George Bentinck, uh, and he was uh, the son of the fourth Duke of Portland. Uh, he was born in um, 1802, um, and his grandfather, the third Duke, had been um, prime minister and actually uh, became prime minister again whilst um, George was a child. Um, and I should say at the outset, I keep calling him George, and that's how he was known, but um, he was actually christened William because bizarrely, his family uh, um, at the time, all of the men in the family were christened um, as William. Um, so it got a little bit confusing. So um, he went by the name um, George, which was his um, his second name. Um, and like many of the uh, leaders we talked about um, from the aristocracy, uh, the younger son of a peer, um, he was uh, then uh, sent off to join the army, uh, which is what happened to a lot of um those who, who weren't expected to inherit the title. Um, but he got into something of uh, difficulty when he um, was uh, not terribly respectful towards his superiors. He he famously called his commanding officer a poltroon um, in a row, uh, which almost led to him fighting a duel. Um, and we'll come back to that. He had quite a they, hot, they hot do, temper. They do like a duel, don't they, in this period? Yes, I, a couple of weeks I, ago. I said a few weeks ago this was an unusual occurrence, but um, as we're, we're discovering, actually, um, not that unusual. Um, so he, he had to be talked out of fighting a duel against his commanding officer um, by his uncle, George Canning, um, who was, of course, later to become prime minister as well. Um, and Canning actually stepped in and, and sort of uh, rescued him from this rather unhappy career in, in the army. Um, by offering him a, a, a role as his um, aide-de-camp, as um, as he expected to be um, Governor-General of India. Um, but instead, um, Canning unexpectedly became Foreign Secretary instead. Um, and so George um, became his his private secretary, uh, which was uh, quite a formative experience. He became a sort of a lifelong sort of devotee of uh, of Canning, um, and, uh, and that had an influence of, in his um, political career. Um, but he was elected as, as a Whig um, in, in 1828, um, but really didn't take much part in, in politics. He was more famous um, and interested in um, uh, horse racing uh, over the course of his career, <laughs> uh, to be honest. Um, and um, he only really um, moved across into politics and took a, a, um, a leading role um, later on. But again, his, his short temper caused him um, some problems. He was a famous figure in, in the horse racing um, community. Uh, he was um, very much a betting man as well. Um, and he uh, fought a duel um, against a man who he'd accused of behaving dishonorably in winning some money from him um, in a bet. Um, and unlike the other one, he wasn't talked out of this one. Um, and they actually met 
for the for the duel in 1835. Um, they met at the crack of dawn at 6 a.m., marched their 12 paces uh, and turned. Um, and whilst um, Bentink himself fired his pistol into the air, uh, his opponent, who was actually quite a good shot, fired at him um, and put a bullet straight through his hat. Uh, so it's uh, it's not quite it's not quite clear whether um, whether his opponent was deliberately um, trying to give him a close shave, but he came within inches um, of being killed. Um, so uh, so that one um, was um, a, a quite a famous duel um, at the time, um, but uh, he survived that. Um, and then, and what, so what, what's the rule? That is that do they just call that a draw? I don't know, actually. I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm slightly mystified as to why he fired into the air. Um, there yeah. was one, there was one report of it that I read that suggested that he was trying to put his opponent off by doing that, um, and that's why he missed. But, um, but I think from the previous duel we talked about, the fact that they sort of they both fired and missed, you know, that that satisfied the duel. Um, the honor, you know, the honor of fighting the duel is more important than necessarily the outcome. Indeed, and maybe that's a metaphor for politics. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, <laughs> but then he. Um, he actually sort of became um, active in politics um, then sort of about 10 years later. Uh, and he made his name in the debates over the Corn Laws. Um, and this is, uh, to get into sort of, you know, A-level history, uh, we've got sort of uh, the, the the famous debates over um, the Corn Laws. Um, you've got Robert Peel, who was proposing to remove tariffs on um, on imports of uh, of corn, which would obviously make... Um, those cheaper. Um, this was heavily opposed by the sort of farming and, and landowning interest um, in the country, and it was a, an issue which completely split politics. It was really, um, and we can overuse this um, comparison, but it was really the kind of Brexit of its day. This was an argument about sort of free trade versus protectionism, um, and it split the Conservatives um, uh, down down the middle. Um, and it was um, Disraeli is the perhaps the more famous um, of the protectionist uh, rebels against uh, Robert Peel at the time. Um, but he and Bentinck um, formed a double act on this um, and they uh, were very close um, and um, they were, were uh, campaigning against uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws, which they failed to achieve because the Corn Laws uh, were repealed with support from the Whigs. But shortly after that, um, Disraeli and, and Bentinck brought about Robert Peel's um, downfall um, by um, ensuring that he lost a vote um, on another measure. Um, and so at that point, um, you then had a, a Whig government came in under Lord John Russell uh, and the Conservatives went into opposition, but they were split between the, those who followed Robert Peel, who were in the minority, and the majority of the Conservative Party, uh, who were protectionist. Uh, they were led in the House of Lords, as we've discussed before, the split leadership of the opposition at the time. They were... Um, led in the House of Lords by the Earl of Derby, uh, or Lord Stanley as he, he then was, um, and Bentinck became the leader of the opposition um, in the House of Commons. And the only reason he did really was because um, Lord Stanley um, didn't trust Disraeli. Um, Disraeli was um, a, quite a sort of cavalier figure. Uh, he was of Jewish ancestry. He was seen as something of a um, of an unconventional politician, um, and to be honest, faced quite a lot of discrimination uh, on that basis. But he and um, Stanley, the leader of uh, the party in, in in the Lords, didn't get on, uh, and so Bentinck, who was uh, much closer to him, um, became leader in the House of Commons. And how long did he last then as as leader of the House of Commons? He had sort of a a, a, a colourful life, but did he did he have much impact as as the actual leader of the opposition? 
Well, he didn't have very long in the role. Um, so they did fought a they did fight a general election during that period. There was an election in 1847 um, when he and Disraeli, who was really the sort of strategic brains of the operation, um, put the case for more protectionist measures um, and uh, opposing free trade. And they won quite a, a significant uh, number of seats in that election. Um, but um, he, very shortly after that, the following year in 1848, resigned as leader um, over a rebellion within the party, over his own position on uh, greater religious tolerance. There was a bill that was brought forward to remove the bar on Jewish members of parliament taking their seats. Um, and mostly because of his closeness to Disraeli himself, um, he supported that. Um, and in his words, that gave dire offence to many in his party. Uh, he spoke in favour of that measure um, and voted in favour of it. And then a couple of days later, he receives a letter from the chief whip uh, of his party telling him that for daring to make that speech, he must be prepared to receive his dismissal. Um, and he resigned, as he said, with good grace, rather than wait um, to be cashiered by his party. So um, an example there of um, a party leader facing a, a re revolt by his um, his backbenchers and uh, the, the man in the grey suit uh, for the forerunner of the 1922 committee coming to tell him the game's up. I don't know what you what you I couldn't possibly imagine what you're referring to, Nigel. It's it's impossible to, uh, to <laughs> history to, is to, another is another country, man. It's a, yes, exactly. I can't draw another example of how we can't draw any parallels with uh, history today. Still to come, we'll bring you another two leaders of the opposition on this special bonus edition of the podcast. After this. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Matt Jolly still with Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies, our next leader of the opposition, who shares his name with a pub in Westminster. It's Charles Manners, the Marquis of Granby. Uh, well, today we're looking at um, Charles Manners, um, who was later on to be the sixth Duke of Rutland, um, but in the time that we're talking about, um, gloried in the title of Marquis of Granby. Uh, which is uh, now rather more familiar uh, to the Westminster set um, as the pub just off Smith Square, um, which was named after, not him actually, but uh, another holder of that title. Ah, so it's not, oh, he didn't even get, yeah, he was so unsuccessful, he didn't even get a pub named after him. No, sadly, that's not him, but uh, he's the only leader of the opposition who's had that title. Um, so um, I was going to suggest we might have, uh, have done the interview in the pub, but I think the trains are uh, a bit screwed, aren't they? So. <laughs> yeah, a bit. Um, so tell us all about him then. So he was um, uh, educated at uh, Eton and Cambridge, uh, as you will be unsurprised to hear of a politician at that <laughs> time. Um, and uh, unlike most of the leaders that we've looked at so far, he was actually a Tory from the beginning. Uh, he was elected as MP for Stamford um, in 1837, the same year that Queen Victoria came to the throne. Um, other leaders that we've looked at, for example, um, George Bentinck, who we were talking about last week, um, began as a Whig and then moved across to the, the Tories um, under uh, Lord Derby, um, who was the leader of the um, Conservatives in, in the Commons, uh, in the Lords rather. Um, but uh, uh, Granby was elected, uh, first of all, as a, a Conservative that year. Um, he didn't exactly rise to high office. He was um, appointed a Lord of the Bedchamber. Uh, to Prince Albert between uh, 1843 um, and 1846. And that was really as, as high as he got in terms of um, public appointments. Um, he wasn't made a government minister. Um, and when 
Peel was forced out by uh, this sort of coup led by um, George Bentinck and Disraeli, uh, he joined them in going over to the protectionist Tories, um, which were led uh, by Lord Derby in the, in the Lords as the overall leader of the protectionists, um, and in the Commons by um, George Bentinck. And when Bentinck resigned, uh, as we talked about last last week, yeah, um, he resigned in 1848, and that really left the Tories in um, in the Commons in a bit of a mess. They didn't really have an obvious leader. They were um, rather um, uh, stuck by the fact that uh, Lord Derby didn't trust Disraeli. Disraeli was clearly a sort of parliamentary star. He was a great debater, um, but he wasn't trusted by the overall leader, uh, Lord Derby, and so he wasn't um, given the leadership. And so Granby was really a sort of compromise candidate. He wasn't uh, particularly impressive. His um, his brother, Lord John Manners, um, was perhaps the more um, impressive, uh, who was also an MP at the time, um, of, of the family. Um, but he was a compromise leader, and he was elected um, unopposed at the suggestion of uh, Lord Derby on the 10th of February uh, of 1848. Um, but he didn't last particularly long. Uh, he le lasted less than a month in the role um, and resigned. Um, yeah, he resigned on the 4th of March, uh, less than a month later. Um, and as one historian put it, he was conscious of his own inadequacy. Um, so um, it's quite a rare example of a politician just deciding um, that he wasn't really up to the job um, and standing down pretty quickly um, and the party once again then had to continue for the rest of the parliamentary session uh, without a leader in the house of commons because uh, because they'd got a leader in the house of lords and those two roles uh were split yeah indeed and so um lord derby was the overall leader of the yeah. protectionists um and we, we say protectionists rather than conservatives of course uh, robert peel who'd been forced out over the corn laws was leading the peelites um a sort of a um a splinter sort of group of the conservatives uh, and he'd been very associated with the name conservatives um and so lord derby when he tried to sort of bring the conservative party back together um, started to advocate using the name um, the Conservatives, and this was met with a lot of um, opposition by um, Disraeli and others who associated it with, with Peel. Um, but that did eventually happen. So um, after, um, after this time, we do start seeing um, leaders once again called um, Conservatives. Um, but he did come back, in fact. He had that brief period where he was the, the sole leader. Um, but because of this mess in the Commons, they couldn't decide who the leader should be. Um, they decided on a job share. Uh, so they ended up with Granby being recalled to duty alongside um, Disraeli and a man called J.C. Um, Herries, who we'll, we'll talk about uh, next week. Um, and so the three of them essentially had a, um, a sort of a job share arrangement as leader of the opposition. Once again, the only reason for that was because Derby didn't want to give it to Disraeli on his own. Um, and that lasted for um, sort of about three years uh, until early 1852. Um, by which time Disraeli had emerged as the sort of natural leader in the Commons, um, and Granby really wasn't terribly impressive. Um, and so he basically retired back to his estate. He uh, sort of left um, public life and, and, and went back off uh, to, be, uh, to be the uh, Duke of Rutland, as he became later on. So that was the story of Charles Manners, Marquess of Granby. Next, John Charles Herries. This week's leader of the opposition um, is um, John Charles Herries, um, frequently known as just JC Herries uh, in his time. Um, and he was one of the older opposition leaders that we've looked at um, in, in this slot. He was born in 1778. Um, and what's also uh, important to note about him is, unlike many of the others we've talked about, he wasn't an aristocrat. Uh, he was the son of a London merchant who later went bankrupt. Um, and he was then educated 
not at Eton and Oxbridge, but at uh, Cheam and the University of Leipzig. So he's already a bit different. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about him is he didn't enter Parliament for quite some time. His early career was um, as a junior clerk in the Treasury, um, and he then was promoted um, rapidly, uh, taking on sort of a role almost as a sort of political advisor to various um, Treasury ministers. Um, the Secretary to the Treasury, Nicholas um, Van Sittart, uh, was one uh, during the Government of All the Talents that we talked about in previous weeks. Uh, he was an advisor to him. Uh, he then became an advisor to Spencer Percival when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer and helped write the, the budget in 1810. Um, I took on a number of other really sort of quite significant um, posts in the Treasury um, as an official. Um, and it wasn't really until 1823, sometime later, that he was um, uh, becoming a, a, an MP and then was appointed to high office himself. Uh, and of course went to the Treasury um, and um, became uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer himself in 1827. Um, he then sort of played a role in various um, governments after that, Robert Peel's government, he was, he was in that as a significant figure um, as well. So he was somebody who'd had a, a long and distinguished career, both as an official and also as a, a minister and as a Treasury minister before he uh, became leader of the opposition. Um, and his time in opposition is, as we talked about last week, during this odd job share that happened um, after the Tories split on, over the Corn Laws. Uh, he was actually out of Parliament when that happened, but then returned uh, to Parliament in 1847 um, and became an influential voice alongside um, Bentinck, who we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, and of course Benjamin Disraeli. And it was after his death, um, uh, the death of Bentinck and the resignation of the Marquess of Granby, um, that he agreed at the age of 70 uh, to take on this joint <laughs> leadership uh, of the protectionist uh, conservatives and really he was there as a sort of grandee to kind of stabilize this kind of um, group of three um disraeli as we've talked about before was not really trusted by the overall leader of the conservatives at the time um lord stanley later the earl of derby um, and so they wanted to have somebody there who was a bit more sort of established and he sort of provided the ballast to that ticket that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.